The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I am your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, a.k.a. Timothy Toastmaster, excited and committed to bringing you informative, inquisitive, and just plain fun positive talk radio. So here we go. Hello, Anteater Nation. It is absolutely my honor to replay this interview with UCI alumni David McMillan. This interview was recorded just a few short weeks after Professor McMillan had received his amazing Nobel News in early October 2021. This week of May 23rd, 2022, he is making his triumphant return to our campus with lectures, student visits, and celebrations. Next week on UCI Conversations, I will have a brand new interview with Dr. McMillan covering his latest news, developments, and research. So sit back, enjoy today's show for the first time, or again, it's that good. So here we go with the original show opening. Good afternoon, UCI. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my absolutely special guest today is 2021 Nobel Prize awardee in chemistry, Professor David McMillan, who just so happened to be at UCI from 1991 to 1996, earning his PhD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zot, zot, zot. Another anteater does it better. Welcome to the show, Professor McMillan. Congratulations. And how are you today? Um, I'm doing great, Kevin. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, You're very welcome, sir. Uh, Now, I do notice a little bit of a brogue there. Can you please tell us exactly where you grew up? And what did you like to do when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. I, I grew up in Scotland, uh, Glasgow. Uh, and growing up as a kid, I played football. or you, We call it soccer here in America. But I grew up playing football and playing golf. Okay, very good. When did science start to kick in for you? Was it from an early age or, or later on? Oh, definitely later on. Uh, I think uh, when I went to, in Scotland, we call it uni. But when we went to university, it was probably in my second year of university as an undergraduate when I first started to take organic chemistry. Uh, I, for some reason, really loved it when most people didn't like it. Um, right. And from then on, it was really wonderful. And then when I came over to 
uh, Irvine and I took a graduate class from Ken Shea and Larry Overman. And that sort of sort of blew my mind at the time of how good those classes were and how strong it was to learn about, how great it was to learn about that this completely uh, fantastic subject from, from those two fantastic teachers. Oh, great, 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 great. Please, can you tell us the story of your brother going to university and then what your dad told you? Sure. So basically, I, I grew up in a very working class neighborhood and I didn't know anyone who went to college. No one knew anyone who went to college. And then my brother decided that he wanted to go off to college, or we call it uni. And my, my parents tried to convince him otherwise. I think they thought he was just trying to get an extra four years of not having to work. <laughs> and, uh, he, but he went, off, he went off to uni and then and he did physics. And then the day wow. he graduated, he actually got a job. And his job paid more money than my dad, who's a steel worker. Uh, he got more paid more money than my father had. And immediately my father told me, okay, you have to go to uni and you have to go and do physics. That's what he immediately <laughs> went. Yeah. So I mean, how many brothers and sisters do you have? I have one brother, Ian, and one sister, Lorraine. Okay. You guys must have been pretty sharp students to be going to the university for you know science and physics and so forth. No? I don't, I mean, it didn't feel like it at the time, <laughs> but um, um, no, I think it was just my brother was more of a sort of rebel and he wanted to go and do something different. And so I think what's interesting is in Scotland, there's a lot of um, I mean, very smart, especially street smart people, mm-hmm. but it just wasn't a culture to go off to college. So I think for my brother, he was enough of a rebel that he just wanted to go do this. And he, he's certainly a smart guy. But he was uh, he was determined he wanted to go off, and he really loved physics, and he still uh, uh, he works in that area to this day. In fact, wow, wow, okay. So, was college? You know, did it go smoothly? Did you did you have you know, especially in your undergrad years, was was there some struggle? Was it you know, was it hard? Was it easy? How was it for you? Oh, it was the first year was terrible in in college because I remember going, and it was I think there was only. I was in a class of about 75 people and there was really only a couple of working class kids. I mean, there was a lot, all these other kids were fantastic. They were wonderful people I got to know, but they weren't quite from the sort of the background I was. So I struggled a little bit at the beginning. And I remember I actually tried to quit at one point and try and get a job, but I interviewed so badly for the job, the job <laughs> I went for that uh, I, I couldn't even do that. I couldn't even get the job. So I, I stuck it out for the first year. And as I said, when I got to second year and organic chemistry kicked in, that's when the whole thing uh, flipped for me. Yeah. Well, that's a great story. That's, that's really great. Well, please tell us about uh, October 6th is when the Nobel Awards were announced. How did you find out? Um, well, the way I found out was, so normally they, what they do is the Swedish Academy trying to reach you ahead of the announcement. So, but because of the time difference, that's about 5.15 in the morning, at least on the East Coast. And what happened was my phone was on the bedside table and it started buzzing like crazy. And for, for some reason, I didn't wake up. I usually wake up early, but I didn't that day. And my wife woke up. She was really annoyed. So she was kind of angry and sort of giving me a hard time about it. And so she went over and took my phone and moved it onto the window ledge away from the bedside table. <laughs> And so I was like, okay, so we went back to sleep. And then the phone kept really buzzing and buzzing. So I picked it up and there was a text from, it said this person at the Swedish Academy, but it spelled my name wrong. 
And there was another text from the other winner, Ben Liss, saying, wake up, wake up, you have to wake up. So I actually called him at that minute. And he said, I was very tired and sleeping. And I said, Ben, what's going on? He says, oh, we we just won this Nobel Prize. And I'm like, no, that's not. I said, Ben, I have these ex-students who are pretty mischievous. They're (laughs) they're absolutely pranking us. I know know exactly who they are. I know what they're doing. And he's like, no, no, Dave, it's real. It's real. I'm like, it's not real. So I, went, I switched, we said bye. He kept texting me and I eventually texted him back and said, this is a prank. I bet him that he was wrong. And then I said, I was going back to sleep. And so I went back to sleep. Wow. Probably about 20 minutes after that, the phone was buzzing again. So I just decided oh, I'm awake now. So I went down the stairs to the kitchen and opened up the laptop. to Actually, I wanted to see who won the chemistry Nobel Prize. So I, I went to the New York Times website and there was my name and, and my face yeah. yeah that's when i basically just about fell off fell off the chair uh apparently yeah. shocking points of my life yeah so what's the first thing you did first thing i did was i um went back up the stairs <laughs> got to my wife told i said to my wife i said jean you have to wake up and she was like what why are you waking me up i said i think i just won a nobel prize <laughs> <laughs> she said, then she sort of said something like, holy crap or something. She got up, and then it was, we had a big hug and a big cry. And yeah. then uh, she came down to make sure I wasn't hallucinating. She read the <laughs> Then we went back upstairs to get my 16-year-old daughter up, which is not easy at 6.15 in the morning. Yeah. And she came downstairs. She saw it. And then we did this kind of dance together. And the yeah. So it was fantastic. It was just an unbelievably surreal and incredibly joyous moment. Oh, that's so great. Now, just to get it straight, now, is that a uh, Scottish thing to do a family dance in the floor, <laughs> or, or is that even unique for you guys? Uh, a little bit of both. You know, there's this thing, <laughs> there's this thing I'm a, a soccer fan, we call this dance called Doing the Bouncy. And oh. so we were doing, we do this, it's a soccer dance, we were doing the bouncy in the kitchen. It's basically just hug each other and all jump up and down in a circle. Uh, that's great. That's great. Well, please, in your own words, can you describe for us what organocatalysis is? And this is what you got the Nobel Award for, right? That's right. Sure. So basically, for those people who are, are not scientists, right. um, if, you look, if you look around you, if you look where you are, and if anyone's listening right now, if they just look around themselves, basically almost everything in front of them is made by a, a, a chemical reaction. And catalysts or catalysis allows you to make those reactions so much faster or in some cases in much fewer steps or in some cases even make chemical bonds that you can't make by other means. And so what we did was most of the ways of doing catalysis was based upon using metals. And in some cases, metals can be toxic. And in some cases, they can be highly reactive and difficult to work with. And what we came up with was the idea, if if you look at your if your hand or you look at your basically your arm right now, we're, we're organic molecules. We're just all made of organic molecules. And we know that we can walk around in the air. We exist in our environment. We don't react with the air. So we came up with the idea of maybe we could use the same organic molecules to actually be catalysts instead of using metals to do catalysts. And that's exactly what we set out to do. And that's, that's what, that was what the citation was for. Oh, wow, that's great. And you know, just to clarify for our audience, so molecules, it's a group of atoms bonded together, representing the smallest fundamental unit of a chemical compound that can take 
in a chemical reaction. Is that, that's what you just said, right? That's perfect. You, you had the nail on the head. Well, great. Was, was your idea a long time in, you know, did you think about it for a long time or was it, you know, was it just the next, you know, you were kind of doing things and this was just the next designated step. Um, When I moved, when I, I went off to, I started my independent career as a first year assistant professor at Berkeley. And when I first showed up, I, I sort of knew already that I wanted to try and do this idea of using organic molecules as catalysts. I, I knew I wanted to do it. The problem was I had absolutely no idea how to do it. And yeah. so that was the tricky part was sort of knowing the problem you want to solve, but having absolutely no, no way to think about going about doing it. And then I was very fortunate because one of my uh, graduate students, who's a first-year graduate student, asked me a question about a very simple mechanism in within organic chemistry. And as I was thinking about explaining the answer of that mechanistic question to him, it made me think that take one component of that answer and, and realize that I could basically transport that or, or translate that into catalysis. And it was one of those things to this day, I still think I'm, I'm so fortunate that he asked me that question. Otherwise, I wouldn't be on this radio show with you right now. Wow, that, that is amazing. Is it patented? Uh, no, it's not patented. Um, it's basically available for anyone in the world to use. Um, at the beginning, a couple of companies wanted to have it patented so that they could sell it and sell the catalyst. But after about a year, we realized that that was actually stopping people from being able to get access to the catalyst to use the world over. So we actually decided to no longer go forward. We actually got rid of the patent so it could allow people to actually use it. Because I think it's better for people to to have access to these things broadly than to make a, a, a small amount of money out of it. So that's where we decided it was much better for everyone just to abandon the patent. Gotcha. Do you re- relate to this? Uh, you know, UCI professor Sherry Rowland, who was awarded the Nobel Award for Chemistry in 1995 for his work on to prevent the destruction of the ozone layer by CFCs, he found it very sobering to be able to make such a significant contribution to mankind. Do you do you relate to that in this work? Is uh, it like like I, that? I, I, I would say that. Number one, I'll say that you know I was that was a very a uh, profound time for me. I was actually a graduate student at Irvine when Sherry Rowland won the Nobel Prize. And I always remember how spectacular that was for, for everyone. You know, mm-hmm. as Irvine is a relatively new uh, campus and a relatively new chemistry department. That was just fun. That was magnificent, actually, when that happened. In terms of the, one of the things that I think we care about, not just in this organocatalysis work, but in, I think all of the research that we're, we're doing is we're, we're always trying to do something that's somewhat fundamental, but we also do it with an eye towards, can you have an, an impact on society? I mean, I think that's extremely important. So in that context, that's something that I would say we take pretty seriously, this desire to somehow be able to help um, society, to be able to help. And for us, mainly, it's probably more in the, sort of the medicine side of things and the pharmaceutical mm. side of things. But this idea that you can see some of the chemistry that your lab developed is being used to to make new medicines or manufacture new medicines. I mean, that for us is extremely satisfying. Great. Professor, excuse me just for a moment while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And today, my very special guest is 2021 Nobel Prize winner for chemistry, Professor David McMillan 
who way back in 1991 ventured across the big pond of the Atlantic Ocean all the way across these United States to land at UCI to earn his PhD. Professor, when you found out about the award, did you have class? Do you teach class or is it just mostly you work in your lab? I do teach class, but um, it turns out I do what's called a double teaching load. So I, I teach twice the amount in the, basically in the, uh, what's coming up to be the spring mm. uh, semester. So at this point, I didn't have any class to, to teach. So that was lucky because it's been <laughs> a very, sort of very busy time. But no, I'll be doing the, the double teaching load coming up uh, next year. Gotcha. Now, in terms of the official ceremony for the Nobel, do you, can you give us a little bit of details about that? Yeah, so uh, I feel very lucky on this one in a, in a bizarre reason. Um, so what's really would have been unfortunate is they decided because of COVID that they are going to have a ceremony here in Princeton uh, for us, which will be part of a sort of worldwide, uh, basically streaming of the mm. whole ceremony. But then they said, so we'll give you, we're going to be one ceremony this year, we'll give you the medal. And then next year, we're going to, fly everyone over to Stockholm and do it all over again. Oh, wow. So we, get, so we get to do it twice. So, and I think this is kind of unheard of. Um, so I'm, I feel sort of very lucky that you get to have two different ceremonies. Yeah. To yeah. get the, the Nobel. So I get to do one in Stockholm, but also get to do one in Princeton, which I think is pretty neat. Excellent. And the award for this Nobel, which you shared with a fellow scientist, and the award's about a million dollars. Is that right? I think it's somewhere about that. I haven't done the calculation, but I think it's somewhere in that ballpark. Gotcha. So is there any restrictions or is it pretty much, uh, here's a check in your name and here you go? <laughs> That's basically it. It's, a, it's basically a check. It's um, You can do with it whatever you want to do with it. We're already basically, I mean, we, we I feel so unbelievably lucky um, being able to come to Irvine in the first place and be part of the American system. I mean, my life is so... I have so many advantages of, of having been in this country. It's just remarkable. So with this money that's going to come in, we're going to reinvest it back into the community. Communities here in America, also communities back in Scotland, but we're, we're going to basically take it and use it to give to charity all over um, rather than sort of take it for ourselves because we've been so lucky in terms of what we've been given. I think that would be the best use of the, that, that, that prize award. Wow, Awesome. Are there any other responsibilities that you have to fulfill as a Nobel laureate? Uh, <laughs> um, my wife would tell me. I, my wife would say I have to clean up my act. Uh, no, um, I think uh, at the moment, uh, one of the things that's it's really interesting is just the sheer volume of requests that come in to do things, which are you know to try and help or be part of some educational programs, basically all over the world right now. And so while there's not any hard and fast responsibilities, I think you very quickly realize that you're in a position to be able to have some influence and you want to take that seriously and you, and you want to make sure that if you can be useful or beneficial in an educational program anywhere in, in, in the world, you should take that responsibility seriously, which is I'm, I'm going to do. Outside of that, um, I'm going over to Stockholm also June of next year to do the Landau Lectures, which is basically where you get together with other Nobel laureates and you discuss science, you discuss other uh, some of the work that's going on in your lab. That's one of the responsibilities involved. And I think from my own university's perspective here at Princeton, I think they see it as it makes you a little bit of an ambassador for your department and your science to sort of 
go out in front of the students, the, the faculty, the trustees, and sort of be able to demonstrate what where Princeton is in, in terms of the science that's going on here. And that's definitely a role I'll, I'll be happy to take on as well. Excellent. Have you ever had anything like this happen to you in your life? <laughs> it, no. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I think I'm trying to think back if I ever won. I mean, I've, I was trying to think if I've ever won in it. In I think maybe in high school, not in high school, in elementary school, I won a spelling bee. Yeah, <laughs> that's about it. But yeah, not, not, not a lot of uh, nothing that really compares to this at all. Gotcha. How about in terms of the whirlwind of what's going on? Has has anything embarrassing? You know, uh-huh. have you, anything that you know come across your bow like, oh man, I wish I had. Uh, I don't know anything like that. Um, not so far, but it's still pretty early on. Yeah, gosh, yeah, <laughs> um, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not, nothing that's been too bad. I mean, one thing which was really fun was um, you got a lot of opportunities to do a lot of different things when this happens. And the yes. one that, that I, I jumped on was back in Scotland, they have this uh, radio show, which has been on every weekend for the last almost 30 years. And it's these two Scottish guys who are really, really funny and they talk about soccer, football, and they really sort of make fun of their guests, but they make fun of their guests in this sort of really nice Scottish way. And uh, I was able to be on this show, which was, was a lifetime sort of dream. So they had me on the show, and it was just hilarious. And everyone in America who's listened to the show just now thinks it's the funniest thing that I've ever heard. And well, so for me, that was I wouldn't say that was embarrassing, but it was, it was absolutely incredibly fun. It was one of the most well, fun things I've ever been able to do. Professor, I'm so glad you brought it up because if you hadn't, I was. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, that off the ball podcast is if you Google it, off the ball podcast, you know, with Professor David McMillan, um, it is just hilarious. I recommend it for everybody. It, it, in just a matter of a few minutes, you were accused of drinking beer while interviewing. Um, they wanted to get a little bit of piece of the money that you're going to re- win, um, you know, and. Uh, also, you know, they suggested that your next your next big act might be similar to Breaking Bad, and I, I was just rolling. It was uh, oh, it, oh yeah, it was, and they they accused me of stealing the idea from the German scientist. I mean, there's so many <laughs> so many good parts to that, that that it's just hilarious, and it's done in this quintessentially Scottish way where it's all taken in really good fun. But yeah. at the same time, it's really it's a really good roast. At the same time, it's, it's yeah, um, it's amazing how they can do that. You know, because they have their show all the time. You're like, you know, how do they do that all the time? They're just naturals. They're just, just natural. Like, yeah, it's, so. it's, it's kind of. I mean, those guys are particularly talented. But it is something you sort of learn in Scotland on the playground. Is uh, it's called banter, and it's basically yeah. you have to be able to give and you have to be able to take. And uh, you learn, and those guys, those guys are like the best in the world at it. But it is a very much a Scottish Irish phenomenon. Yes, 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 yes. I, I loved your response too. They said, "You know, what was it like to win a Nobel?" And, and you said, "It's absolutely mental." Because <laughs> <laughs> right. it was, it was, it was completely mental. I mean, it was, yeah. it was a mental thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are are your folks still around, or have they? No, my, my mom and dad have sort of passed on. My dad okay. uh, just before COVID, but my mom passed away many years ago. But they would have been very, oh. I mean, they would have been living it up like crazy right now. My oh. sister, my sister's still back in Scotland. And uh, right now she's the sort of queen of the village at this point. <laughs> so she's loving life at the moment. She's having a great time. Uh, that's great. Is she in, uh, is it Belle Shill? Is that where? Uh, 
Is that it, where your family's? It's called Bell's Hill. Um, oh. And for Americans, it turns out we're a really working class, tiny little neighborhood. But the, uh, the person who's the most famous person, and I think you probably will remember her, is so Sheena Easton actually oh. come, comes from the same place, in fact. So <laughs> that's what Bell's Hill is really famous for is Sheena Easton. Okay. Did you yeah. know her? <laughs> actually, my brother, this is a true story. My brother used to date her. Actually, oh, back my gosh. Day. Yeah. Which makes Scotland sound like it's about 14 people living in one village. But, <laughs> was, uh, but she, yeah, my brother Ian used to actually go out with her when he was about 15 or 16 years old. Oh, that's so funny. Hey, I also, when I was looking at the map of you know where it was located, I noticed that there's a place, Irvine, in Scotland. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with it? Is it related at all to... You know, Irvine here in California? I don't think so. In fact, you pronounce it differently. And that actually gave me a really hard time when I first moved over to Irvine. I didn't say call it Irvine. I call it Irvine. We call it Irvine. As uh, in like, and I'd, I'd keep asking people, to, you know, directions to UC Irvine. And no one knew where it was. <laughs> it took me, it took me a, a good month to learn how to say Irvine. Um, so, yeah, it was that was one of the sort of first things. And when Scottish people come over, they, they always refer to it as UC Irvine. Uh, <laughs> uh, people just look perpetually confused. Uh, that's great. That's good. Very good. Did you know you were being considered? What's that like? Is it completely, you know, a, a dark wall? You know, is there any tip off that you might be being considered? Absolutely not. And I think um, it's kind of interesting. We actually have another area of research that we've been really heavily involved with for the last 10 years. And now and again, people would suggest is that there might be a prize for that area. But, you know, at my sort of career stage, even if it was, which I, I can't say that in any way, shape or form that would happen, but that would normally happen about another 15, maybe another 20 years from now, not right now. So when this one happened, it was so out of left field and a complete shock to me. So to be honest with you, although it was two weeks ago, I'm still trying to get my head around the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's just it's still still sinking in. Yeah. Your co-recipient, recipient, Professor Benjamin List from the Max Planck Institute in Germany, you know, had you met him before? You know, was there any mention of this work that you were going to do in this area? Do you keep those things kind of close to the vest or was there any discussion of it? There was no discussion, but I remember basically what happened was, so we were working on our part of it and by complete coincidence, Ben was working on, and it turns out what he's doing is is quite different from us, even though it both falls under this umbrella mm-hmm. of organocatalysis, but it is quite different, the things we were doing. I remember I was a first, no, maybe, yeah, but end of my first year, beginning of my second year as an assistant professor, and I went down to his institute and gave a talk. And the person he was working with, Carlos Barbas, we actually met up, as faculty do, and we talked, and he showed me this paper they were just about to submit, and I showed them the paper we were just about to submit, and we were sort of laughing about, you know, that's kind of remarkable how we're both using these organic molecules. Uh, we both thought it was really cool, um, but we were that was but the only time early on that we sort of, sort of realized that, two, that these two groups were working on similar types of things. Probably about a year later, uh, then absolutely, we all got to know each other really well. We'd go to conferences together. We'd end up in the same spots. And then they'd start having conferences just on organocatalysis. So then at that point, the, the field had grown extensively. And I would definitely see Ben lots of times at lots of different places. So we got to know each other really well. When you were uh, at UCI, did you meet 
or work with um, any of the prior Nobel winners of Sherry? Well, you were there when Sherry Rowland went, Mario Merlina, Fred Ryan. Did, did you work or know them at all? I didn't know them well, but I definitely met Sherry Rowland a couple of times. He was an intimidating man. He used to scare me just by his stature. I think he was a lovely man, but it was just for when you're a, when you're a graduate student, he's just such a, you just look up to him uh, so extensively. I didn't get to know him as a person, but I certainly knew him as a scientist. Mm-hmm. I understand you'll be given four copies of the Nobel medallion. Is that true? And do you know what you're going to do with them? Yes, I'm getting four of them. One of them is going to, I'm going to keep in my office so I can sort of show it to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them I'm going to give to my sister. Basically, that's going to happen uh, so she can uh, give it to people. Uh, if anyone in Scotland, like my high school, or anyone wants to to have it or use it, they can they can have it. The third wow. one, I'm gonna, the third one, my intention is to give to UC Irvine, uh, wow. actually. And the fourth one, I'm going to make in a, a like a Stanley Cup. And what I mean oh. by that is, I'm going to give that to uh, the alums. All that so I've had almost 200 people come through my group of coworkers. So I'm going to give them that fourth medal. They can keep it for a week and then pass it on each other, and it'll just that medal can travel all over the world amongst all those coworkers, so they can also have a piece of it. Because quite honestly, if it, if it wasn't for them, again, this conversation we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So I wanted to make sure that we were able to share this amongst amongst all the people who came through my group. That's excellent. Excuse me for one more time, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. And my guest today is UCI alumni and 2021 Nobel Prize winner for chemistry, Professor David McMillan. And we are to the point in the show where we ask the big burning question, how does someone from Bells Hill, Scotland, go to a local university at uh, University of Glasgow, end up at UCI. How did that happen? Oh, it was a wild story. And you, you probably realize pretty quickly, and I've had a lot of, sort of very lucky steps along the way. I actually, when I was at Glasgow, I decided I wanted to try and do my PhD in America. So I was reading this journal called the Journal of the American Chemical Society, and I realized there's all these great places in America. So I just wrote a hand, I basically did these handwritten letters to 19 different professors all over America. And I only get one response. And it was from <sighs> Professor Hal Moore, who is in the chemistry department at Irvine. And he sent me back an application booklet and said, look, if you're interested, fill out this booklet. So I filled out this booklet, sent it back in. and thought, I'll never hear from them again. And then uh, next thing I knew, I was accepted into the, the program at Irvine. And that was one of the greatest days of my life because I realized that I was going to get to go not just to America and I get to go to Southern California and be part of this school to, to do my, to my, my research activities. So it was if how more in terms of his impact on me, I mean, if he hadn't read my letter, if he hadn't taken the time to send me back that booklet again, I wouldn't even made it to America. I never mind anything else. So I'm incredible indebted to how that's fantastic. What do you think were the key components of your education at UCI that assisted you in your development as an independent researcher? Oh, um, number one, easily, is I worked for a gentleman called Larry Overman, who yeah. I think is, is very, well, he's very famous in chemistry, and I think he's very famous in the UC system as well. Um, just a spectacular scientist. 
But beyond that, you know, just a remarkable human being. He cares about every person who comes through his group, even these waifs and strays that show up from, from Glasgow. And <laughs> it takes them under his wing and, and really sort of builds them into being strong scientists. That's what he does. Um, but just a really fantastic human being and, a, and someone who really takes uh, teaching seriously to the point where he will spend so much of his own time, sacrifice so much of his own time to educate his students and take it so seriously. And I think it's one of the reasons why Larry is so beloved um, mm. across the community and obviously across Irvine because he's just such a fantastic scientist, but such a fantastic human being. Mm, great to hear it. Have you had a chance to come back to visit the university, UCI, at all lately? Not lately. Uh, I've been back a number of times, but but not not lately. I was just asked to come back and give the department Casey Lee lectures, which I'm really excited about. And uh, I'll be out playing some golf while I'm out there with, with Larry and some others. But I always love coming back. In fact, sometimes uh, we've been back now for with my family to Laguna Beach on a number of times for vacations because we love it so much out there. I mean, it, it really is paradise. It is. It really is. Um, and I miss it. I miss it enormously, but it's just, it's such a sort of beautiful part of the world. It's just remarkable. Can you describe your impressions of UCI? Like from where it was then to, to now, can you, yeah, can you give us a, a sense of that? Um, from then to now, well, I can give you my impressions. Let me give you my, my impressions when I first showed up. Sure. I mean, so keep in mind, I was coming from Glasgow. Um, and it was, you know, to suddenly show up in Southern California and one of the most beautiful parts of Southern California and one of the most beautiful parts of the world. And I just remember sort of showing up and I was sort of taken aback by how big the, the roads were, right? You have these big <laughs> roads and like how do you even cross the street. And then I sort of realized I'm going to have to buy a car. So I had to go find a car and learn how to drive in America. But one of my favorite moments was when I had a roommate called John Humphrey, who showed up the same time as me, he came from Michigan and we had to go find an apartment. And so we went to this apartment in Costa Mesa called Pine Creek Village. And I remember to my dying day, uh, the lady there, a really nice lady was walking us around and she says, you know, we have four swimming pools and, and nine jacuzzis. And, and I always remember saying to her, what's a jacuzzi? <laughs> so, so she takes me over. And she shows me the jacuzzi and she goes, you know, people come and hang out, you know, get a six pack on a Friday night, come and hang out. Lots of people come and hang out at the jacuzzi. It's a great place to get to know people. And I was like, wow. And I remember calling my father in Scotland back the next day and say, dad, I'm never coming home. <laughs> <laughs> because dad, have you, do you know what a jacuzzi is? <laughs> it's like, it was just so like, it was so incredible to me, like a jacuzzi. I couldn't believe that these things even existed. So to say it was eye-opening would be a, the understatement of the year. It really yeah. would. How would you describe the UCI culture to others? Uh, UCI culture is just, I mean, I, I can speak really for the department. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's always been this way. It was built on collegiality and it's always kept collegiality. And so one of the things that I've learned as a professor, if the, the faculty all get along really well, that sort of that culture sort of flows down into all the members, all the, the co-workers, all the graduate students, all the undergraduates, they all feel it. Mm -hmm. And so it, that's exactly what Irvine has. And it's very powerful, actually, because that sort of um, friendliness and that's really sort of good outlook. 
when people show up every day and they're involved in science, they're involved in research, and they're happy and they're having fun and they enjoy all their interactions with all their colleagues, it's the best thing in the world. And it, mm-hmm. it really allows you to sort of free yourself up to go and do whatever it is you want to do because you're not worried about petty stuff. You're sort of enjoying yourself too much. And I think that is the culture that I, I know of UC Irvine. It's just how friendly, how interactive, and how much fun it is to sort of be around people there. It's just a, it's a great spirit to the whole place. Excellent. What about the reputation now of UCI on the East Coast? Do you feel like we have a reputation on the East Coast? Absolutely. Um, so at least from my perspective, um, I know, for example, in the sciences is viewed as one of the top schools uh, on the West Coast for sure. And if you think about, you know, how old UC Irvine is, that's remarkable, right? I mean, it really is incredible how quickly the place has developed, but it's developed, developed across all the sciences at Irvine. And chemistry, I know, people know that the chemistry department is just world-class, you know, sort of top 10 in the world chemistry department. And, you know, that, again, for in such a short time frame is remarkable. And that's certainly something you see across all the sciences. It's, it's truly respected for being such a, a strong campus. By the time you left, your PhD advisor, Professor Larry Oberman, observed that you were very talented. Did you know you were talented? <laughs> no. no I, I, think that's, I think that's Monday morning quarterbacking by Larry. I, I, uh, <laughs> he said but, it was very clear that you were passionate <laughs> and creative. He did say that. I would say I was passionate. I, I, I don't know if I was creative. I know I think that Larry, you know, is was, was certainly <laughs> Larry made me an far, far, far better scientist than than I was when I certainly when I showed up. But in comparison to the people who are around me, I, I think I was still a, a fair ways away from many, many people who I went to graduate school with at Irvine who were just fantastic chemists. So you know, but but I would say that you know the impact that Larry had on me though was he significantly improved me. I'll say that much, but it was still a long way off of, we had some really phenomenal people that we, we, I was, I was lucky enough to work beside. One of the first members of your lab back in 1998 at UC Berkeley was current UCI chemistry professor Vi Dong, who said everyone felt like they were working on something special in the Macmillan lab. And this, this Nobel award feels like validation. And she said, you were creative, bold, visionary, do you still collaborate with her or anyone at UCI? At the moment, I don't collaborate with anyone. I don't collaborate with V at the moment, but I do keep up with V extensively. I don't know if you've had V on the program. If not, you should. She's absolutely hilarious. She's one of the funniest people that you'll ever meet. She has one of the, the driest sense of humor, which I, I personally love. But she, is, she as a first-year uh, student, was just outstanding. And you know, if you think about this, she came out of, she was an undergraduate in Larry Overman's group. She could have went and joined any chemist in the country. She could have worked for the number one people in any department. And she chose to come and work for an assistant professor in his first year at Berkeley. So that says a lot about V and how courageous. And I was very fortunate um, when I started at Berkeley because I had, I basically had seven graduate students who were all of that sort of type who could have went and worked for anyone, but took a chance on me. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful, but I still don't know why they did it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I feel really lucky, but that's who V is. You know, V is the kind of person that she she marches to the beat of her own drum and she's an amazing scientist. And that shows up in, in everything that she does. And no, she's that, she was someone who really helped put my group on the map. 
Well, you must have been very persuasive because she also had an offer from Harvard. And her, in fact, her mom wanted her to go to that big name Harvard. And she, she was persuaded, obviously. She did, she, she described, which I had never really heard how it works, how when your lab is first starting, there's, there's you, you're the first guy. And then there's a, you know, then there's another and there's a few more to how big is your lab now? How many people are in your lab? Oh, it's pretty big. I think it's 44 people. Yeah. My labs now. Yeah. So it's like building anything. It goes from, you know, just a few people to, you know, building up to 40, 45, 50. When you left UCI, did you go to Harvard? Is that initially where you went or, or Berkeley? Right. Was it used? You, did I get I it right? Ha- I went to Harvard. So yeah, did my PhD at Irvine and then okay. went over to Harvard to do a postdoc uh, for two years with Dave Evans, who's another very well known uh, chemist. And then uh, began my independent career as an assistant professor at Berkeley two years after that. It's interesting that it's listed as independent research career. So I guess, does that mean that you had your own lab? Is that what, because, you know, do you, like with Professor Dong's lab, is that independent research now too? I guess I never, it is. Okay. So so what it is, once you've finished your education, which is your PhD and then a postdoc, you apply for jobs and you become an assistant professor. And that's when they give you startup funds to, mm-hmm. it's a small amount of money to try and get your lab up and running, try out some ideas and you hope that they work. And then if you've been able to sort of demonstrate that the things you're doing are worthwhile, after about six years, they'll give you tenure. Um, and that's when you're permanently employed right. at the university. So those first six years are sort of the most nerve wracking uh, years of your life because you're sort of on this, sort of time, you know, trying to find out if you're going to make it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but someone like V, you know, V actually started in Toronto and straight out of the gate, I think everyone in the US could see the things that she was doing were just fantastic. And so Irvine very cleverly sort of moved in and, and got her and convinced her to come back, back down South. And, you know, that's where she's been ever since just doing, just doing really fantastic things. Gotcha. And then you went from Berkeley to Caltech. Is that true? That's right. Um, uh, basically I was at Berkeley for two years mm-hmm. and then Caltech, you know, you can probably tell I'm a lover of uh, Southern California <laughs> and uh, Caltech came in for me and it was somewhere where Dave Evans, my one of my advisors had been and, and Larry Overman spoke so highly of Caltech um, that I decided that and uh, it would be such a, a great place to go and, and be. And so I decided to sort of make that jump and I went back, I went down to Caltech and I spent six years at Caltech, and that was just wonderful. Just a beautiful place to be. And how does it transition to then you made your jump to Princeton, which is where you've been since then? Right. So I moved to Princeton, in uh, that was about 2006. And that was because I, I met my wife, and my wife was geographically sort of landlocked because of uh, basically her kids and her job and everything. So I had to sort of make the decision to leave Southern California, which was very, very tough for me. So I went off to went off to Princeton. I always tell people my only culture shock was, you know, every time I moved to the East Coast, I got a culture shock because uh, I love Southern California so much. But since I've been at Princeton, it's been, it really has been fantastic. Uh, I didn't really know Princeton when I first moved here. It's an amazing university. I mean, it really is. They care so much about excellence here and they really invest and put resources into science. So I've been here, oh, just over 15 years now, and it's been just a wonderful time. So I'm, I'm really, it's taken me 
you know, a, a little while to get used to not being in Southern California, but now that I'm here, it's, it's a beautiful place to be. In terms of your lab, you talked about uh, having about 45 people. In terms of your you know, research and so forth, is it a dark place? Is, it, is there a lot of things burning? Is, there, is it a <laughs> chemical smell? Uh, are there a lot of computers? What is your lab like? What does my lab look like? Well, so we were lucky because we, uh, Princeton built this brand new building um, for our whole department. And so ours is, is basically covered just in glass on all sides. So the, the labs are bright and it is full of light all the time, which is great. Because of the, the, the bad old days of being surrounded by chemicals and noxious fumes are all gone. So you now have these state-of-the-art fume hoods where all these graduate students who are working, it's the air turnover is like every, I think it's like every seven minutes in the whole lab. Wow. So it's remarkably a sterile environment in terms of being healthy and things like that. But it's also, you know, I think the way that they, they build a modern lab, it just makes it it flows really well, and it's a lot of interaction between people. That's one of the things that you, is really critical is that you have to have lots of connectivity between humans talking to each other all the time. The more of that that goes on, the faster the science goes because that's where all the ideas come from. So one of the things that I really love is how much people get a chance to be around and talk to each other, which is the way that the modern labs are, are now designed. Ladies and gents, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest is 2021 Nobel Prize winner in chemistry and UCI PhD alumni, Professor David McMillan. And right now we talk about some of his latest research. Is this area that you're being recognized for, or you talked about another area, is it light photochemistry? Is this another big area of research for you? That's exactly right. We do this thing called light photoredox, which is where we use light from LEDs which, you know, if you put an LED close to your hand, it doesn't do anything. You can't get sunburned from an LED. Mm-hmm. So we think of it as being, a, to a human being, we think of it as being a, a mild light source. But it turns out that if you have these, these catalysts that you can use where those catalysts will absorb that light, that mild light, and their energy will change enormously to the point of it's the equivalent of them being heated up to almost 22,000 degrees Celsius. So that's an enormous amount of energy packed into a little molecule. And these catalysts can then go on and do these really unique and different types of new chemical reactions. And so that's an area that we've been working on for about oof, probably about 14 years now. And that's been really exciting for us too, because that I think is really having a pretty good impact on the way that people make medicines at the present wow. time, because it really accelerates the types of new types of molecules you can make. Wow. Wow. Fantastic. Was your work used in the RNA or the, you know, the mRNA COVID vaccines is, you know, was that part of the basis for that or no, it's different? Or do you know? No, our work was not the basis for that. Although, which is very tangentially related, we, uh, we, we invented this new thing called micromapping, which allows you to actually study how certain molecules that interact with which receptors on cells. And one of the things that we did do, and we're getting ready to publish, uh, the spike protein, which is on the virus, uh, the COVID capsule, it's known that it, it binds to ACE2, which is a receptor. And we've actually now been able to show that it's actually binding other places too that were not known. And we think that's actually quite relevant with respect to the level of infection that goes on. And that's something that came out of some of this photo-based chemistry that we've, that we've been developing. 
Wow, fantastic. So uh, is your work continuing in that area or have you finished your work there or, or is it continuing? Oh, very much continuing. We're, we're now taking that that type of light-based approach and taking it into every therapeutic area possible because, as you know, all of biology is based on cells, both the external part and the internal part of cells. And so this technology allows us to study those to find out the way things are interacting in a way that wasn't really possible before, which gives you lots of insights. And with those insights, you can start to think about new targets, new types of therapies. So that's something that we're now really taking in lots of different directions. Fantastic. Professor, is it a challenge to balance fundamental academic research versus industrial research? Can you comment on that? I think it is. I, I mean, I, I do think, you know, one thing we have to do, my group does a lot of things which we're, we hope will have uh, applications. I mean, and we're very open and honest about saying, you know, we hope people will take this and immediately start adopting them for things which are useful for whatever purpose they're interested in. But at the same time, we would argue that a lot of the things that we're doing are fundamental. And, and I would argue you can do fundamental research and still have it be accessible to people that can use it for their particular application. But we choose to do that. And one of the things I think is really important is that there's other people who do fundamental chemistry and other fundamental sciences that might not have an immediate application, but you have to have that. Because if you don't have that, you, you don't know what where in the future you might need it. And it will become useful in some way, shape or form down the line. And it's incredibly important to do basic fundamental research, even if you have no immediate application for it. And I think the more we get away from that, the more we sort of limit ourselves as a society to have the benefit of all this knowledge that we can sort of go back and pick from mm. at the appropriate time, any stage in the future. Yeah, great. Who has influenced you most in your career? Can, <laughs> uh, who's please. influenced me most? Well, without question, Larry Overman has been the, the biggest influence um, is a, I mean, he really was someone who spent, and I think this is true of so many people that he's worked with, that he sort of takes this uh, this mushy, raw piece of uh, uh, not very sophisticated uh, scientist and sort of turns him into someone who knows, it improves them dramatically, I'd say that. Yeah. So he, he was been a, a, just, you know, an, the number one influence. Uh, thereafter, the second person I worked for was a guy called uh, Dave Evans. And Dave Evans... Also, very stylistically different from Larry, but was just, again, a, a someone who has a fantastic way of thinking about science. And what's interesting in science, it's a lot to do with how you think and the problems you identify and the directions you decide to, to sort of go in. So those two people had really had a, a very large impact on me in terms of how I particularly think it was a scientist. Outside of that, I mean, the people I really admire beyond the chemistry world or people that other people look up to too, like Elon Musk. I mean, Elon Musk is someone I think is just probably the most revolutionary human being um, that there's been in, on the planet in a long, long time. Um, and that's just someone who's just changing the world in so many different ways. And yeah. he does so just because of the sort of desire to sort of think about moving science forward. Yeah, that's fantastic. Have you ever met the man? No, I'd love to meet. I'd love to meet him. I, I drive a Tesla, so I'm. I was, a, <laughs> I, was a, I was one of the early. I bought, I bought a Tesla in 2012 because I was so convinced of this, and yeah. I still have that Tesla, and I love that car. And it's just been fantastic to see what's happened in that world. To see, I mean, 
I, I remember when I first bought a Tesla, people would stop me in the street just to, to, to look at the car. And now when you go around and there's just Teslas everywhere, it's yeah. just one of, one of the most beautiful things you can see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, somehow I have a feeling that you may be meeting him <laughs> sometime. Oh. How about adversity? You know, you, you boy, you've, you've reached the, the top of the mountain. I mean, I don't mean to overly, you know, boy, it's such a, uh, an honor what you've achieved. But how about adversity? Do you feel like there was ever, a, I don't know, have you had to go, go through anything like that? And, and can you briefly describe how you got through it? Yeah, that's a great question. Life is funny, right? Because when you look back at it, you, I think a lot of times you, you can sort of look back and see things that probably were kind of adversity. But at the time, they did. They just didn't feel that way, right? Because you just you work. You just keep pushing forward and keep pushing through it, and and that's certainly been the case for me. So at the time, it never felt like it was real adversity. But I think I mentioned already my, my first year in college. Mm-hmm. I felt like a fish out of water and wasn't quite sure this was for me. And and that was a time of, I really wasn't sure what where I wanted to do with my life. Although at the time it felt fine, it didn't feel that that terrible. But in retrospect, it was clearly uh, not convinced on where my career was going to take me. Maybe in the States, was just wonderful. So there was just really no adversity. Being in, in Larry's group, it was just so, I mean, I know I sound very gushing, but it, it really was true. It was like such a wonderful time. And everyone I talked to from Larry's lab will sort of say the same thing. I would say Harvard was a bit tricky because the intensity of the people at Harvard is very different. And there's an East Coast culture, which I'm sure you know, which is very different from the Southern California. Southern California People are intense about their science, but they're not intense about their social interactions. And what I mean by that is they take their science seriously, but they don't take themselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. And I really like that approach. Sometimes on the East Coast, uh, you can feel that edginess. And so moving to Harvard was, that was an interesting time. <laughs> because when you, my, my impression of America was, was Costa Mesa, Irvine, Laguna Beach. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm living in Boston and uh, that was quite different. That was a significant change for me, I would say. But outside of that, I'd say I've been pretty lucky. I've been yeah. very lucky through my whole life. I've, I've really had a, a really charmed charmed existence, I would say. Are you ever intimidated? Oh, all the time. <laughs> I mean, I'm intimidated right now. I mean, it's, I mean, it's uh, no, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, like, with, with the, for example, when they told me I won this prize, they said, all right, we want to put you on the worldwide BBC News. You're going to be live in 10 minutes. I mean, like, where to? And they're like, all around the world. And I'm like, what do you mean live? They said, well, everyone will hear you live. And I'm like, really? <laughs> and so, and then you just, you have to get on with it, right? You just right. have to get on with it and you, sort of, you deal with it. But I don't know. I, I feel like I'm intimidated all the time. I think um, I'm someone who, like everyone, suffers from imposter. I mean, you can't get more imposter syndrome than, than winning a Nobel Prize and thinking, what are they doing? So, uh, <laughs> you know, so I think just like everyone else, I get intimidated all the time, all the time. Do you consider yourself a, a religious or spiritual person? Um, not religious, but definitely um, I believe in... People, I believe in the idea of karma, but not in the sort of sense that there's a universal karma. I do believe that people who are generous and do well by others will end up uh, being treated well and will have generosity given back to them, not because the universe is figuring it out, but more because human beings respond to people who are, who are generous and good people and look out for each other 
And those people tend to, everyone looks out for each other who's, who has that sort of way of being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, I, I, I absolutely believe in that. I think if you do do good by others, good will happen to you. I, I believe that from a er- very, very early age, and I, I still believe that now. Excellent. Just to bring it back home as we were winding up things, what did you like to do when you were in Irvine? Where did you used to hang out when you weren't in the lab? Oh, we were not in the lab. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say this because lab. Well, we used to always go play uh, beach volleyball over in the, the faculty housing over there. We used to do that. And <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the evenings, we would all go to this club called the Sharp Club, uh-huh. uh, which was in Costa Mesa, which was a fantastic nightclub because it had all these pool tables. We um, were beautiful pool tables. Uh, and they also had a, a dance floor. But then they also had the shark tank with actual sharks swimming oh, back Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember and, that. And my favorite story, although it's maybe not a nice story, but it's my favorite story was the one of the people was up feeding it, the shark, and they got their, they got their arm bitten. And I always remember this got reported in the LA Times because it was the first shark attack in something like nine years in Southern California. It was the first time it had ever happened five miles inland, which I thought was just, just brilliant, actually. Like the whole thing of having a shark attack in, a, in an actual shark club. The person right. was fine. The person was okay. But it was just, that was, that was a very cool place to go. The equivalent, which was over in the University Village, uh, was the Metropolitan, which I think is Met- Metropolis, sorry. Right, Metropolis. right, right. Metropolis, right. Yeah, which is closed. I think I closed a long time ago. But yeah, I think the Shark Club might still be there. I'm not sure. Yeah, a couple, I will say another thing that's changed is I remember the UCI roads back in the day, or the Irvine roads back in the day being so big, right? I remember sitting in an intersection thinking, they will never fill up these roads. These are so giant. Well, I hate to tell you this, but they're filled (laughs) up with cars now. So yeah. Do you know when you're going to come back to UC? Have, do you have a date yet of when you're you're going to be able to come back? Yes, I'm going to be back in, I think it's May the 22nd or 24th of next year. So I'm really looking forward to being back and spending time. I'm going to go hang out in Aldridge Park and do all the, do all the stuff I used to do. Uh, that's great. Professor, thank you again for being with us today. Congratulations, congratulations, congratulations. Our community is so frigging proud of you. We, we, I, I just can't say more. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Kevin. I thank you, Kevin, for making the time for this. I really appreciate it, too. Cheers, bye. You have been listening to an encore edition of my October 2021 interview with Nobel laureate and UCI alumni, Professor David McMillan. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. This current week of May 23rd, 2022, Dr. McMillan is briefly on campus again, seeing old friends, giving presentations, and interviewing on UCI Conversations. Tune in next week when Dr. McMillan will be back with an all-new interview, including updates on his research and his life. We will see you then. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, wishing you a wonderful day and encouraging you to keep working hard because when I don't, I get depressed. Don't touch that dial. There is much more to come on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Play it, Fred Kaplan.